Today's scripture reading will be from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. This is the reading of the Word of God. One more passage, if you would turn to the book of Ezekiel. Prophet prophet Ezekiel, chapter 7. I want to read to you verses 23 through 27. Now, maybe I ought to give you a little preface here because this just comes out of the blue. God is going to, he is explaining to his people through the prophet that judgment's coming and it's going to come in all kinds of forms. And one of the forms that it comes in is that there will be no more counsel from the elders. There will be no more, there will be no more word from the priest. There will be no visions from the prophets. And the people are going to be overwhelmed by the Babylonians. So that may help you as I read. And we'll talk about that later too. Verse 23. Make the chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. Therefore I will bring the worst of the nations, and they will possess your homes. I will also make the pride of the strong ones cease, and their holy places will be profaned. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there will be none. Disaster will come upon disaster, and rumor will be added to rumor. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will be lost from the priest and the council from the elders. The king will mourn, and the prince will be clothed with horror, and the hands of the people of the land will tremble. According to their conduct, I will deal with them, and by their judgments I will judge them, and they will know that I am the Lord." This is the reading of God's holy word. God. Now, now we've been looking at, and I, I kind of deviated last week to, to talk about uh, Thanksgiving. And tonight we'll do another service where we can think about Thanksgiving as a group of folks together tonight. But we've been looking at the officers or the offices in Christ's church and we started by looking at Ephesians 4, 1, and 1 through 12. And verses 1 through 6 tells us something important. Before we choose a minister, before we choose elders, 
before we choose deacons, we have to be a certain kind of people. That's verses 1 through 6. We have to be a people who are united. We have to be a people who, as we've said in the past, who can leave church shoulder to shoulder to go out and preach the gospel to the world and be salt and light to the world. But we also have to be people who can sit at the table like last week and look at each other face to face and drink cups of coffee. We can't be like Euodia and Syntyche at odds with each other. We have to be able to talk to each other. And so we, you know, in, in this passage, Paul talks about being gentle and humble and patient and tolerant and loving and seeking uh, peace with each other. Then we come to verses 7 through 12, and we see that Jesus is a gift giver. And he gives gifts to every single member of the congregation according to measure. And we saw that Jesus is an exalted gift giver. He comes from heaven to earth. He makes a descent, and he's going to make an ascent. But first, he descends, and while he's on the earth, he goes about his business. He goes about the business of doing good and accomplishing salvation for us. Who would have ever thought that the cross would be his weapon to destroy Satan and drive a peg through his head? But that was what he used to crush Satan and our enemy and sin that holds us in bondage. And so Paul tells us that we're prisoners of Jesus Christ. We are those who are in a triumphal procession. If you go read the passage, it's a little difficult, but there's a triumphal procession, and those who are in a triumphal procession would be chained and brought back into town, and everybody would be uh, seeing what this general had brought into town as he defeated the enemy. Well, we are the people that Jesus has won to himself, and we are prisoners. We are chained, if you will, to the cross of Christ. Now, before anybody walks out of here, and maybe you're not familiar with this, I, I, I thought, man, I, I, better, I, I better talk about that for a second. What does it mean? Somebody walks out of here going, well, I don't want to be a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be in chains. Well, let me explain it to you like this. When you're chained to the cross, you're as free as you'll ever be. Well, let me, let's, let's take it a little further. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus said, come to me, I will give you rest and I will give you a yoke to wear that's easy and a burden that is light. And so let me explain it like this. I remember back when I was in college, I had some guys that would never study with me on Saturday. They never studied with me on Saturdays. Why don't you study on Saturday? We got to study because we got to do chemistry and we got to do PCM. We got to do all our stuff. We got to study on Saturday. We got to go to the labs and do labs, extra labs on Saturday. And they never would. What are you doing? Well, we're hang gliding. Well, tell me about hang gliding. Well, hang gliding, these guys have to get in these harnesses. And so they get these harnesses on and it, it's cumbersome. When you're on the earth, inside a harness it's really cumbersome it's really uncomfortable and it just is you know there there they are but what they can do is they can run and when they run and, and run off a cliff or run off the side of some hill all of a sudden they start flying and they're free and that's what it's like to be yoked to christ when you are yoked to Christ, all of a sudden you find yourself, there's this lift, there's this grace, and now you're free to fly. You're free to obey. You're free to do what you're supposed to do and not what you want necessarily to do. And your wanter is being changed all along the way, and you begin to, to soar, and we are on our way to glory. But until we get to glory, Jesus gives us gifts and he gives us these things to do until we get there. 
And one of the things that he gives in this passage of Scripture is not just gifts to all men, but he gives gifted men. And he gives four different gifted men. There's apostle, there's prophet, there's evangelist, and there's pastor-teacher. Now, we said in our study previously that apostles are those called directly by Jesus Christ to be His ambassadors, and they've seen the resurrected Christ, and they go out, and they preach, and they teach, and they write these things down, and they're recorded for us in the Scriptures. These men, the apostles and the prophets, they pass off the scene. We do not believe in any more revelation being given today. So we have evangelists, and we have pastor-teachers who are given to us, ordinary ministers, in order to teach us what is written down. Now, we said that an evangelist in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is, is a man who's called by the mission work. This is a mission work. And just for those of you who don't know, there was nine people on the, the committee that called me. Now, what that meant is that committee interviewed me for, I don't know, I, I can tell you probably six months. And they worked through things, and we worked through things, and we answered questions, and so on and so forth. But once they were done, they petitioned the presbytery to seek approval to call me. So the church is wanting me, and then the presbytery has to approve of the man they call. So they have to do their thing, and they have to evaluate me. And there was Kim Key. The church home missions and church extension had to approve of that. And so all these approvals and all these things take place so that a man can be called to gather a people to start, hopefully in the future, a particular church. And in the future, you're going to elect. You're going to call a man, and the presbytery will approve of that man to be your minister. That man could be me. That man could be someone else. Generally, it's the evangelist, but not always. Now, as we move forward, let me give you my outline. Here's the outline. Four questions and one argument. I want to answer four questions and give you one argument for the, re the reason that you should be a member of a congregation. Now, in the last sermons, we've looked at the office of elder and minister in the New Testament. And we said that those offices didn't just come out of nowhere. You just, when you read your New Testament we, we have, a, we have there, there's people who need to learn to read the whole Bible, right? That's one of the things. We need to read our whole Bible. And you will find that there's a minister in the Old Testament that's congruent with what we find in the New, and you'll find elders in the Old Testament with what we find in the New. So all the roots of these offices are in the Old Testament. So here's the first question. Where did the eldership come from? The office of elder grew out of the time of the patriarchy when there were families and there were clans. There's fathers who begin to represent their families. And these fathers represent their families. They rise up from among the family to give counsel and to, to make decisions and to determine right and wrong and so forth. Family elders would represent them, their family to other families who had elders. And then some of these families, like one, one of the things we had in a church in California, there was one man who represented probably 40 people in that church. He was their elder, if you will. That was sort of like Abraham. He was an elder. He was a patriarch. Isaac, Jacob. These men would represent their families. They would represent groups of folks, and they were unofficially elected, if you will, to represent their families. It was an established position, but it was not an official position until we come to Exodus 18, 14 through 24. Now, we, we read that passage a few weeks ago. 
This is something that's very definitive that happened. After Moses sets the people free God by God's mighty power, he sets the people free from Egypt, he is found sitting. He's found listening and applying the Word of God to every single issue that comes his way, minor and major. And so he is tired. <laughs> and his father-in-law Jethro sees this. His father-in-law says, man, this is taking a toll on you. I got a little bit of of advice for you. Listen to me carefully. I think what you need to do is choose, appoint able men, fear uh, men who fear God and hate dishonest gain, men who will do and do do what is right. And I want you to choose these men to take care of all the minor complaints, all the smaller issues. Get these men out there doing this work. Take the load off of yourself, and you will only have to deal with the major complaints. You will give the counsel when it comes to major things. You will give the rulings when it comes to major things, and you will be relieved. And so Moses listens, and this ecclesiastical office of elder is born. So all the elders arise from the congregation. Now as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, this office of elder doesn't disappear. We see elders in the New Testament. When Jesus is on the scene, one of the things he says after he, after he asks his disciples, remember, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? Immediately after that, he says, the elders are going to be the ones that put me to death. <laughs> there are elders in the New Testament. That's the point here. And then when we get to Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, we see that an eldership is already existing in the church of Jerusalem. Did you see anywhere? If you read your Bible, and you'll know the answer. But you don't see anywhere in the first 11 chapters of Acts where it says they sat down, they elected men, and they did it this way, and so, so on and so forth. They just did it. And the reason they did it, because that was historically what they had done throughout the Old Testament. And so when we come to Acts 15, we see these elders joined together with the apostles at what we call the Jerusalem Council. And the big issue at this moment was justification by faith alone. So the elders... James, Jesus' brother, was one of the elders at this council. And there were all these apostles. Peter was there and Paul was there. And so they all join together and they sit together and they come to a decision. They come to a decision that justification is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from circumcision or apart from any works of the law. When we, when we look at what's going on at this council, we see that apostles are ruling or they are elders. And we see that elders are there ruling with apostles. But when the, at the end of the day, when they walk out of the building, apostles are, are rulers, but elders are not always apostles. There's the, there is a difference. There are men and those apostles at that time, they were preaching the word, they were writing down the word, and they were serving the sacraments. We're looking at this point, we're looking, we see elders, we're looking for a minister. He's not on the scene yet. He hasn't popped up yet, but we're looking for him. And one of the verses we looked at last time was 1 Timothy 5, 17. And this, work, this verse does a great deal of work for us. That's why I picked it. It says this. It says, elders who rule well are deserving of double honor. And then it says, those who preach and teach are worthy of double honor. So we see the term elder serving two uh, purposes for us. It can be those who rule well, and it can be those who rule and preach and teach. There are those who rule and preach and teach. 
And this fits perfectly with what we see in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, we see these elders who come out of the body, raised up and elected by their folks. And we see that happening in the New Testament. And we see also uh, this term elders being used for those guys who preach and teach like the Levites. Now, the Levites in the Old Testament was, was that uh, tribe that God chose. God chose them and said He wanted them to be the ones who did word and sacrament and to be the ones who would superintend the worship of God. So we're looking for that, that, that priest, and now we see a man showing up in the New Testament, a minister, an elder who preaches and teaches. He is a man who believes that he is called by God very close to what we see in the Old Testament. So we have an elder, and an elder is recognized by the congregation. An elder is somebody who rules. An elder is somebody who's apt to rule. He's somebody who is biblical. He's a biblical man. He's examined and he teaches. But on the other hand, we have a minister or an elder who preaches and teaches. Now, he believes, listen to me, this is, this is very important. He believes that God's called him to preach. He believes. It's a subjective thing. So he has to take that call, and he has to be evaluated by the church to see if his call is really, does he have the gifts and abilities to do this? Does he have the character to do this? And so in our Presbyterian form of government, this means that we, we bring a person under care. It means that we bring him in front of the Presbytery, and then we, we evaluate this man's gifts. It's a little dis un uncomfortable to be, you know, hey, I'm called by God. Well, okay, let's challenge that. Let's, let's examine you, and let's see if you really are. Because the, the, and, and what we're looking for, what the Presbytery is looking for, you know what they're looking for? They're looking for giftedness, but they're also looking, they're looking for humility. <laughs> they're looking for men who are willing to submit to the, the, the brothers. And so here we are. We go and we, we go through the educational requirements. We look for the character requirements. We have to write sermons and then preach those sermons. We have to do oral exams and so forth until the presbytery approves the call. The church is letting the presbytery help them to approve this man to be maybe one day the, the pastor of another church or their church. If a man's not been ordained, he will be called. There will be a meeting, special meeting for ordination and installation. It's a joyful thing. If the man's already been ordained, he'll just be installed at a special meeting. So we have elders who rule, and we have elders who rule and preach. And we recognize that the man who preaches, he's to preach, like we said in our sermon prior to this one. In 2 Timothy 4, 1-5, he is to preach the Word of God. And he must be very clear about one thing for sure, and it's that passage that we looked at in Acts 15. Remember, they all go to this Jerusalem council. The question is, is a man justified before God by faith in Christ alone, or is a man justified before God by faith in Christ plus works? The minister has to be really clear on this. Instant fail if you don't get justification right, Brian. Instant fail. When you come to Christ, you come and you put your whole soul's weight on what Jesus did and not anything you do. 
Every time you go and ask somebody, just about every time you ask somebody, how do you know that you're going to go to heaven? They'll always say, well, I did some good stuff. Wrong answer. Faith in Christ alone means that I will only go to heaven because of the good things that He did and nothing that I did. It means, as Paul says, I put no confidence in my flesh. I put no confidence in my works. Let that sink in. Jesus, the gospel is this. It's not do this and live. This is the easy way to remember this, guys. It's not do this and live. It's live and do this. It's, it's Lazarus, you dead person out there in that tomb who can't hear, can't see, can't move, can't speak, can't touch, can't taste. Anything, Lazarus come forth. That's it right there. And he comes out. How did he do it? Jesus gave him the power to do it. Little girl, I say to you, 12-year-old, Jairus' daughter, dead. He takes, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John in there with the mom and the dad. And he says, little girl, Talitha Kum, I say to you, arise. And she rises up. How did she do that? She was given the power. And we could go on and talk about the widow of Nain. Her son is in a coffin. <laughs> and Jesus walks up with his heart melting for her and says, son, rise. And he does. And when Jesus says, believe on me, when he says, believe, he gives you the power to believe. Do you believe that? <laughs> when he says, repent, he gives it with the command, comes the power to do what he says. And so when you and I do the will of God, we're not doing it to be saved. We're doing it because we are saved. And we could just go on. But folks, listen, this is the evangelist preaching. This is the evangelist who says to himself, woe. Be to me if I preach not the gospel. Now back to question number two regarding elders. Why do we call it elder, the eldership? Well, we call it the eldership because there's always more than one. There's a plurality of elders. And anytime you see the word in the singular, elder in the singular, it's referring either to the office or it's referring to a man who's an elder. But most of the time you see it in the Bible, you will see an eldership, you will see many. And for our church... To be a particular church in the future, we have to have a minimum of two elders. You have to have a minister who's an elder, and you have to have a ruling elder for us to be a, a, a particular church. So it's always more than one. And the term eldership, it suggests age. It always suggests an older man. But when we talk about an older man, we're not always talking about old because we all know there's many men that we've talked to who may be old, but they're immature. So what we're looking for is maturity. We're looking for men who are mature. I remember in the movie, it's about time for everybody to watch It's Wonderful Life. Right? And that it's Christmas time. You can watch It's a Wonderful Life every day of the month, right? Just used to. Now they, they stopped doing that because they knew it was drowning people. But there's something that is said about George Bailey in that, in that movie that really makes a lot of sense. You know what they say to him? They say, George, you were born older. Now, he's a younger man. But what he meant was this. All his life, the guy began to give this litany of all the things he did that, were, that made him mature. He's a responsible guy. He saves his brother out of the water who's drowning in the cold water. He did all these things. He runs the building in loan, that broken down building in loan they'd all talk about in the movie. He, he did all these responsible things, and so George is mature. He's mature. And that's what we're talking about. Here's the question we would ask a man. 
Has this man lived long enough to have acquired wisdom and understanding? That's what we're looking for. We're looking for maturity. We're looking for a man who's got a good hand on his Bible. He doesn't master it completely, but he is pretty much a master of the Scriptures. And he takes the Bible, applies it to his own life, applies it to the life of his family, and applies it to all the issues in his life. Question number three. What does the eldership do? What is the function of the elder? If you look in your Old Testament and New Testament, you're going to see that elders sit as judges. They sit and they judge disputes between people. They determine guilt or innocence, and when there's guilt, they determine a punishment that fits the crime, and then again, they give counsel. From the Old Testament, we've seen Exodus 18, and we've also now looked at this Ezekiel passage verses 23 through 27. The key phrase there that I wanted you to see is the elders offer counsel. Now, when Judah is breaking covenant with God in 586, finally the the axe falls and the judgment comes and there's going to be the Babylonians taking over their things, crushing the walls of Jerusalem, their holy place, the temple is going to be profaned. There's not going to be any peace. And then he says there's three things that happen. They're going to pursue the prophet for a word from God, but there will be no visions. They're going to pursue the word from the priest, but there will be no word. They're going to pursue counsel from the elders, but the elders won't have any counsel to give. So we see that elders offer counsel and it's a blessing to have elders who offer counsel and it's a curse it's a judgment when we have no elders to offer counsel proverbs eleven fourteen says for a lack of guidance a nation falls but many counselors many advisors there's victory it's a blessing for us to have god ordained god-given men who have uh, age and maturity from the New Testament, we saw in 1 Timothy 5, 17, what elders do. Again, this verse is great. What do they do? They rule. They rule. They exercise rule. Romans 12, 8 speaks. Now, remember, there's five different lists of gifts. All right? And in one of those lists of gifts in Romans 12, it says there are those gifted with leading. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, another list of gifts, it says there are those who are gifted with administration. So that is what an elder does. He rules, he gives leadership, and he administers things in the church. In the Bible, we see administrators of the civil code. We see them sitting at the city gates. Do you remember when Boaz wanted to be the kinsman redeemer of Ruth? Where did he go to get the business done? He went to the gates of the city where there were ten elders, and he did the business with the elders. In the New Testament, we see the Sanhedrin was made up of elders. And what did they do? Made a bad decision. <laughs> they decided against Jesus. In Acts chapter 11, 27 through 30, we see James, the Lord's brother, is one of the elders of those there in town already. And so when the elders, they sit together, they, they make decisions together, they work together, and they give guidance together. So they are men. They're a body of men. They're mature men. They're raised up from among the congregation. They have been, as one man put it, around the block. Right? They've been around the block. And they've acquired wisdom. 
and they're able to give attention to the Scriptures as they work with the people uh, under them. When it comes to plans, because the men have been around the block, they can spot pitfalls in plans brought before them. They can see problems in other people's plans. When it comes to behavior, they've been around the block and they can see behavior that needs to be tweaked and corrected. When they come up to a, a particular problem and they don't know the answer, they know how to get to the answer. They know the procedure to get to the answer so that they have a solution. The session's not all-knowing. The elders are not all-knowing. But they work together and they come together with their experience. And these are men who have to listen to each other. They are men who walk through things together. Sometimes they argue through things together to come to the best guidance that they can give to a single person, a married couple, or to the congregation. Fourth question, are elders always right? Yes! (laughs) We know they're not, right? They're men and they're sinners. And they're not always going to get it right. I mean, think about the elders of Israel. What did they do to Jesus? They got it wrong. But in Acts chapter 15, the elders along with the apostles, they got that right. They're not always right. And you know what? If you talk to your session, you talk to your elders, they're going to say stuff like this. We could have done that better. Oh, we could have done that case much better. You're going to find session members going, we could have given better direction on this particular point. But I want you to listen to me very carefully. Sometimes what these men are up against is absolutely unbelievable. I mean, man. We, we, I remember in California, we sat down with something and we looked at that thing for three hours and I said, we got to go home. We got to come back and get some new eyes on this. I don't know what to do. I can tell you what it is someday. Wow. But there's situations that, that are brought before a session that are just difficult. And when a church is working well, and I, 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 think, I think our mission's working pretty well. But when it's working well and you're being shepherded really well, the problems stay small. They don't get big. But here's the problem. Sometimes we don't say, help, when I'm six inches going down. We wait until we're 600 feet under the water. And that's when the pastor gets a call at 802, true story, 802, 2020, 802, hey, pastor, my wife's committing adultery. What you going to do? Well, that's when he starts swinging into gear and running to try to save something that if I had known way earlier, you know. The session has to teach families about managing finances, and the session has to deal with some families falling out with other families in the church. It has to deal with families who have family members who are falling out of touch with them. And the, the minister, I mean, the, the session's always saying, what do we do? What's enough? Is this, here's a question we have to ask. Are we intruding in people's lives here? Are we too harsh? We're always asking, are we, are we too harsh? Is what we say going to cause people to fall into despair? Well, those are our four questions. Now, here's the argument for church membership based on the work of the elder. We all know what I'm about to say. In our world today, the idea of church membership has just fallen by the wayside. 
It's common to hear ministers in pulpits say things like this. We don't even have a membership role. You just add yourself to our church and you subtract yourself when you leave. This reflects the culture that we live in. We live according to our own autonomy. Even when we join a church and we see elders in a church, we go, oh, that's good, that's biblical. But we still see ourselves as the autonomous ones who can determine whether we stay or go. But if you go read your Bible, the Bible knows nothing of today's individualism. Hebrews 13, 17 reads, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account for you. Obey them so that their work will be joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, how can you obey leaders and submit to authorities in the church if you do not join the church and make a vow to be submissive to the elders of the church. How can leaders keep watch over you as men who must give an account if they don't find you submitting and joining the church? Again, listen, very carefully listen. This does not mean that you submit to men who ask you to do something that's sinful. I'm not saying that. In fact, in fact, I'll go this far. Not all the counsel given by the session has to be obeyed by you. Sometimes it's just the best they can give. Now, if they tell you not to do this because it's a sin, that's a totally different thing. But sometimes even the counsel is just counsel. But here we have an argument for church membership. You and I, we're not just to assemble ourselves together for worship, but we are to submit ourselves and be accountable to a session of elders. The Bible teaches us that our souls are to be intertwined with wise counsel all the days of our lives. All the days of our lives. It sort of starts when we are born. In normal situations, the Bible teaches us that we are to live lives connected to authority every single day of our lives. Now, now we all know there are situations where uh, people are born in situations they don't have moms and dads like normal, but under normal conditions. The fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. Ephesians 6, 4 says, honor and obey your parents. You and I, we are born into families, and those families are our authority structure. Now, what happens when, what happens when we leave home and we're single men or women? And what happens when we are uh, married? What, who becomes our parents then? Well, could I suggest to you that your parents are the elders? You may, what? Wait, I never heard it put that way before. Just stick with me. We all need to be connected to authority. We all need to be intertwined with authority. Now, Deuteronomy 32, verse 7 reads this is what Moses says before he goes off to be buried by God. Remember the days of old, consider the generations long past, ask your father. And he will tell you. Ask your elders, and they will explain to you. We have fathers, and we have elders. When you're under your father, you talk to your father. When you're under elders, you talk to your elders. Again, this does not mean I will argue to the death. I've had all these, I've got to marry a bunch of people in California, and I had this time I spent like a whole hour talking to them about leaving and cleaving and becoming one and making your own decisions and it's vital for you to make your decisions and but you still need to be connected to elders who love you 
You still need to be connected to people who care to tell you the truth. Now, there, if an elder reaches too far, well, that's one thing. But hopefully they won't. It can happen. But there's no doubt that you and I, we're to leave home and be responsible. We're to assemble ourselves together. We're to place ourselves under elders who will keep watch over our souls. It doesn't mean that they make decisions for you. It doesn't mean that you're to be codependent upon them. It does mean that you and I will, when we have really difficult times, we might rub up against our session. We might rub up against the wise men in the church and ask for their help. I know that Lori and I, 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 I used to just go through this in my mind. When we were called to go to New Zealand, I think that was the biggest decision at that moment in my life. And so we took this decision and laid it out before eight men for 90 minutes. And they told us what they thought. (laughs) They said, we can't make your mind up for you, Mark. But they told us what they thought. We need to be in submission to the brothers. The Bible teaches us that, doesn't it? It's a great advantage to be raised in a Christian church. It's a great advantage to be raised in a Christian home. It's a great advantage to have friends like all those around you and the many that are not here today. When we're all here, it's a big deal, isn't it? It's fun. It's really great. We rub up against each other and we iron sharpen and iron and we talk to each other and we have a great time. It's a great thing also to have men who love us and care about us and men that we respect. We, when we come to them and when we submit to them, we make their work a joy and not a burden. And the Bible says it brings success to the body of Christ. So let's thank God for these men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message on elders. And Father, we thank you that we have those who care for our souls. We thank you that we have men among us that you will raise up one day to be those who spend time praying for us, spend time uh, thinking about our souls and men who are willing to to think about our souls and give an account for how they treat and care for us and shepherd us. And so, Father, we pray that as we think about these things, that these these things might grow in our hearts, that we might see men, uh, mature, mature men come forward, be our elders, be our deacons. We get to study one more week on this. Next week we can talk about deacons. Lord, we pray that you will put these things on our hearts that you will help us to to find the men, help us to see these men and love these men in the future. Father, we ask that you would teach us how you love us so much by giving us men to care for us. Again, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to sing our way out of this building uh, to your glory and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.